Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Last week, we began 1 Thessalonians, but I told you it was going to be one of those stuttered starts because we began 1 Thessalonians last week, but we'd have to take a little break from it this week, come back to it next week. That's because I was in California this week meeting with some other evangelical free church pastors, which was really exciting. The problem was that I end up coming home at 1 a.m. on Thursday morning. And it's a little short to be able to get uh, a sermon together in a few hours for you guys. Uh, by the way, California was a really nice place. The palm trees are nice. The weather is nice. But at $5.49 a gallon for gas, and I have cell service, and I could barely get my phone to work because of all the people, and going to the grocery store and buying food and it being like a mortgage payment, all I can say is I'm very happy to be home. You know, no place like Iowa. <laughs> very thankful to be here. Last week, I gave you a choice of what we would talk about this morning. I said, uh, I'm going to pull out of my archives. You guys get to choose. Would it be, what does the Bible say about happiness? Or what does the Bible say about forgiveness? And you guys chose. You texted in your answers. Uh, the winning one was, what does the Bible say about forgiveness? So that is what we're going to be studying this morning. Well, speaking of forgiveness, you know that forgiveness in our culture is not really considered a virtue anymore. It's considered a vice. Forgiving people, that's not a strength. People consider that a weakness. I mean, just look at the movies that we have out there in entertainment. It's all about revenge. It's all about getting even. For those of you who are older, like me, the older people, remember Rambo? What's his famous line? He drew first blood, so I'm going to get even, get revenge. And for you younger people who don't remember Rambo, uh, you remember some of the more recent Liam Nielsen movies, like remember Taken, where his daughter gets taken, and the story is not about him just getting his daughter back, but it's about getting even with the people who took his daughter. Revenge is all over the movies. That's what our entertainment is about. Yeah. If they take a pound of your flesh, you take their life. But revenge is not just in the movies. Isn't it in the news? Think of what's happening over in the Middle East right now. It seems like those wars never stop because no one's ever able to say, I forgive you. Let's put this behind us. Let's move forward. It's no, you hurt my great-grandfather, and so we're going to shoot a rocket at you. Or you're going to do this, and it just keeps going on and on and on. The idea of getting revenge, it's not just in the Middle East. It's here in the United States. In fact, I just Googled revenge in the news this week. <laughs> Did you guys hear about that guy in Colorado with the pet? See, you can Google it when you get home. So this guy, he has a dog in Colorado, and he takes his dog for a walk, and his dog ends up in a dog fight with another dog. And anyway, he goes home, and he plots pet revenge. And so he goes later on, and he shoots his neighbor's dog to get pet revenge. I mean, this is like taking it way too far. But as Christians, you know, we're supposed to be the opposite. 
while the world is about revenge, while the world is about getting even, as Christians, our calling card, what sets us apart from others is we're about offering forgiveness. Being that we're a forgiven people, we are a forgiving people. In fact, if you want to take this entire message and put it into one soundbite that I want you to remember when you walk out the door, it's simply this. That as Christians, we have been offered crazy, insane levels of forgiveness through Jesus Christ for us. And we deserve none of it. Now, as Christians in this world, we are to be offering crazy, insane levels of forgiveness to other people, even if they deserve none of it. That's what sets us apart in this world. Um, Jesus has so completely, ridiculously forgiven us that that should flavor every single relationship we have with other people. People should be able to know a little bit about Jesus without even bringing up Jesus, except for the fact that we are so forgiving like Jesus. This past week, I was talking to a couple where uh, there's a little tension between a husband and wife, and uh, the wife doesn't know that her husband had made a purchase that he's pretty sure she's not going to be real happy about. So he's afraid to tell her. And I said, well, why don't you tell her? You have to tell her. He says, well, if I tell her, She's going to yell, she's going to scream, and she's never, ever, ever going to forgive me. I thought to myself, that's not Christian marriage, is it? Does there need to be some tough conversations there? Oh, yes, of course. But there has to be also some forgiveness there. Because when you start getting hysterical, you can't keep getting historical, right? You can't keep bringing up the past all over again, or it kills the presence. The Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness. Let me just give you some verses. In fact, the Bible tells us that as Christians, for us to be unforgiving people, after we've been so lavishly forgiven as a people, it, it just doesn't make sense. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Radical, crazy, insane levels of forgiveness is so central to who we are as Christians that for us to withhold that forgiveness from other people may be simply recognition we don't know the forgiveness of God himself. That's a scary, serious thought. We'll talk about crazy forgiveness. There's one that came to mind. You guys remember the movie Unbroken? It was popular a while ago. The story about Louis Zamperini. Louis was the man who was captured by the Japanese. He was put into a Japanese prison camp. He was tortured by the Japanese. He hated the Japanese. He dreamed of killing Japanese. But when he eventually became a Christian, God totally changed his heart. And he actually forgave his torturers and his captors. He eventually went and sort of became a missionary to the Japanese. How does somebody so radically and completely change? It's experiencing the crazy, insane levels of forgiveness from Jesus. And then it must, it will, there's nothing else it can do but flow over into our relationships with other people. 
Here's another one from the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The Lord's Prayer assumes that we will be forgiving those who have hurt us. It assumes we will not withhold our affections from others when we forgive them. Now, I should say this. Forgiveness of other people does not necessarily mean we will restore full trust and confidence in other people. That's different. We forgive other people. We will love them. We will want what is best for them. We will no longer hate them. But trust takes time to build, and it takes a moment to lose. And it also takes time to restore. So we may forgive someone, but we'll still have to take time to build trust in someone. Here's another one, Ephesians 4, 32. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul says to the Ephesians, when do you forgive other people? Forgiveness means you are kind towards them now. You don't hate them and want what's bad for them. You're, you, you want what's best for them. You're tender-hearted towards them when you forgive them. You genuinely care about them and want what's best for them, not what's evil and what's worst for them. Now, revenge is the way of the world. Forgiveness is the way of Christians. But I also have to tell you that forgiveness is also one of the most powerful ways that we can share our faith. Do you realize that? In this world, everybody expects that when someone gets hurt, the other person will want to get even. But when you get hurt, and instead of wanting to get even, you offer kindness, you offer love, you offer forgiveness to someone, people will look at you and go, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. Why are you like that? What a wonderful opportunity to say, you know, as Jesus has forgiven me in crazy, insane ways, I can forgive other people in crazy and insane ways because of how Jesus has forgiven me. And people will look at you and go, I want to know about your Jesus because I can't forgive because I hold on to you. That's the kind of stuff that make Christians stand out like a light on an airplane strip on a dark and cold night. Let me give you some more uh, details about forgiveness. Why is forgiveness an essential part of the Christian life? Here we go. Refusing to forgive will imprison us in the past. Refusing to forgive and leaves us holding on to the pain. It leaves us holding on to the hurt. We refuse to forgive. It keeps the wounds open, and it will never allow them to heal. Refusing to forgive will feed anger in our life. It will feed resentment in our life. Refusing to forgive leaves us in a spot in history in the past. It will not allow us to move forward into the present if we refuse to forgive someone. Here's another one. Refusing to forgive will lead to bitterness. This is important. The longer we hold to, onto a hurt that has been done to us, 
the more bitter of a person we will become. We need to think of bitterness this way. Bitterness is not just sin. Bitterness is like an infection. You know what happens, you medical people, with an infection that's left untreated? Doesn't it begin to spread throughout the body until it ruins and consumes and destroys the entire body? That's what bitterness, when you hold on to a hurt and won't forgive someone, will do to you. Let me give you some examples of this. Bitterness. It changes the way you think about everything. Instead of thinking about wholesome things, instead of thinking about positive things, when you hold on to hurt, become bitter, you're always thinking about negative things and revengeful things. It just soils your whole thinking patterns. Bitterness, it'll change and ruin your dreams for the future. Instead of looking at a future and dreaming of a future that'll be honoring to Christ and glorifying to Christ, usually you have a future where you spend all your time thinking about how can I get even? How can I make someone pay? Bitterness, you know, when you don't refuse to forgive, doesn't it leak into your language all of a sudden? When all of a sudden you start finding yourself using sarcastic comments, start using words that tear other people down rather than build other people up. When you refuse to forgive and you start to become bitter, it leaches into all of your relationships and starts to flavor your relationships especially your marriage. That if you're holding on to a hurt that was done to you at some time in the past and you've not given it to Jesus and let it go, what happens is you're not a very attractive spouse. You're not a very positive spouse. You're not a very life-giving spouse because you're usually a, a griping, complaining, angry, and bitter spouse. Bitterness tends to ruin a marriage. I like to think of bitterness this way. It's a good visual for me. Has you guys ever run across like a dead or rotting body in the woods, like an animal that got hit by a car or something like that? It's been out in the sun for a while. You hunters know what I'm talking about. How the smell is so noxious. It completely overpowers everything and leaves you sick to your stomach. Some of you are going, yes, I know that smell. You can't forget it. That's what bitterness does to a life. There, you know, there may be good things in your life, like flowers and positive things, but all of it is overpowered by the bitterness in your soul. And it leaves a noxious stench that infects every single relationship, that leaves people distancing themselves from you, not wanting to be drawn close to you. Because bitterness is a flavor of your life because you've chosen not to forgive. Look what it says in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That's what we've already talked about. And by it, many become defiled. Bitterness spreads to other people, which is what we've just looked at. Here's another thing that's important. Refusing to forgive gives Satan an open door. Ephesians 4, 26-27. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Satan gains the most ground in your Christian life when you refuse to forgive other people 
in this life. When we won't forgive and we hold on to hurts done to us by other people, Satan gets his foot in the door of our lives and he leverages it to bring us towards sin. I thought about this a little bit. You know when God was at his best? Here's what I think when God was at his best. God was at his best when Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. You know when you're at your best? You know when your finest moment is in life? When your finest hours are in life? When you forgive other people like Jesus forgave you. Fully? Completely and freely with no strings attached. That, my friends, is your finest hour. Just like Jesus dying on the cross to forgive you was his finest hour. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. If I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. But then you notice why he says he forgives. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. If we're not eager to forgive, once again, that's that same theme. For Satan gets his foot in our life and trips us up in our life. Here's another one. We've covered this already, but it bears repeating because it's so important. Refusing to forgive may mean we are unforgiven. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So think about that. Forgiveness to the Christian life is so central and so important that holding on to hurts and refusing to forgive may mean you don't even know Jesus Christ in the first place. But in saying that, I need to recognize that for most of us, when there's been deep hurts, forgiveness is not what I would call a one-and-done deal. Where somebody hurts us, we choose to forgive them like Jesus has forgiven us and we move on. For most of us, when it's deep hurts, we forgive someone. But then at 3 o'clock in the morning, we wake up, and our mind is busy, isn't it? Our mind is rehearsing the hurts all over again. And our blood pressure rises, and we start to have a cold sweat as we lay there. And what do we have to do at that time? Go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus and ask Jesus to help you forgive all over again. And at the time when we do that, what I find is I have to go back to thinking about Jesus and how much he forgave me completely, fully. Crazy, insane, radical levels of forgiveness for me. And it's only as I think upon how completely and fully Jesus has forgiven me that I find then Jesus giving me the ability to forgive others. Isn't that the same thing that happens for you? Not just to me. It's true for all of us. Look how these verses remind us that our ability to forgive is tied into our understanding of God's forgiveness of us. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Fully, completely, fully. 
Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is such an important topic in the Bible that the Bible doesn't just give us verses here and there commanding us to forgive. But did you realize the Bible gives us an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the topic of forgiveness? This is the book of Philemon. This book shows us what forgiveness looks like in a real-life situation between two friends of the Apostle Paul, where there had been a great hurt between them, great difficulty between them. Uh, the one is a man named Philemon, whom the book was written to, and the other is a slave named Onesimus. Let me tell you the background for their story before we look at the book. So what is the background of the letter of Philemon? This letter was written when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. At that time, Paul wrote the letter of, to the Colossians, the letter to the Philippians, and the letter to the Ephesians while he was under house arrest. But earlier in his life, he had had a ministry in the city of Ephesus where he was there for three years. And during that time, a man from the city of Colossae you know, had come to the city of Ephesus. He was a wealthy businessman named Philemon. He heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus from Paul's lips. He trusted in Jesus. He was born again. He went back to the city of Colossae, and he was like all in for the church. In fact, he was a wealthy guy who had a big house. The church in Colossae met in Philemon's house. Uh, that's how all in he was. But wealthy Philemon had a slave, a number of slaves, but one slave that was particularly rebellious, that was particularly difficult to work with. His name was Onesimus. And we don't know all that happened to break down the relationship between them. But we do know how it ultimately ended up. Onesimus ran away from Philemon. He traveled 2,000 miles from the city of Colossae all the way to the city of Rome, getting far away from his master, hoping he'd never be found. There in the city of Rome, which had 800,000 people in it, he hoped to become lost in the sea of humanity, never to be hunted and tracked down. Well, the letter of Philemon doesn't tell us this explicitly, but it does seem to hint that when Onesimus left Philemon, he didn't leave empty-handed. He took with him a fair amount of money. Travel was expensive in that day, and he traveled 2,000 miles. And apparently he didn't just take enough money to travel to Rome, but he took enough money to set himself to live comfortably in Rome. Think of it this way. Imagine that you have a lady you pay who comes and cleans the house. And she doesn't earn that much money, but she's gracious. She dusts, she cleans, she keeps the place clean. But one day, you pick up your checkbook, and you happen to flip it up and notice it. There's a check in the back of your checkbook that is gone. You get on the computer and check, and discover that $100,000 has been taken out of your checkbook. Your bank has been essentially run dry. You call this person and discover they didn't just skip town, but they skipped the country. 
with $100,000 in your money, which they use to travel to a foreign place. Anybody be angry? Anybody be fuming upset? Oh, yeah. That's essentially what Onesimus did to Philemon, to fund his trip all the way to Rome to escape. Now, we need to know that at this time, slaves in Rome, the idea of slave rebellion was not tolerated at all by the Romans. About 100 years before this, Spartacus had led a slave rebellion of about 70,000 slaves. Uh, the Roman legions slowly mowed them down, life after life. And when they got down to the last 6,000, they took those 6,000 slaves and crucified every last one of them. So there was zero tolerance in Roman culture for slave rebellion. At that time, when slaves were ran away, if they were caught again, they were branded on their forehead with an F for fugitive. If they stole money when they left, they were branded with an F and a C, right smack in the center of the forehead. Fugitive criminalis. That is the way that slaves were treated at this point. Now, Onesimus, he, he went all the way to Rome, hoping to get away from Philemon and start a new life. But God has an interesting way of doing things, doesn't he? Just as Philemon happened to run across Paul and hear the gospel and become a Christian in the city of Ephesus, Onesimus happened to run across this same apostle Paul in that massive city of Rome, hear the gospel from him, and he also became a Christian. And his life was radically changed. Instead of being a man who just thought about himself, at that point he became a man who dedicated himself to helping and assisting Paul while he languished in prison. Well, Paul had written these letters of Ephesians and to the Philippians and to the Colossians, and he had a man named Tychicus who would be a letter carrier who would bring these letters to those churches, travel all that distance. But Paul also had a challenge to Onesimus. You know, now that you're a Christian, there is one broken relationship you need to write. That's the relationship with your master Philemon. Travel with Tychicus back to the city of Colossae and try to make that relationship with your master right. The master that you've wronged. Well, Paul knows this is a dangerous thing for Onesimus. He could be crucified. He could be killed. He could be branded on the center of his forehead with an F and a C, which would mark him for life. But Paul writes a letter a letter that was to be read as soon as Tychicus and Onesimus arrived in the church in Philemon's home. I want you to picture what it was like when Tychicus shows up in Philemon's home and there in tow with him is Onesimus, the runaway slave. Philemon sees him and he gets red in the face. He clenches his fists that no good low life after what he did to me. And Tychicus says, oh, Philemon, Paul wrote a letter that I'm to read to you. Let's read it right now. The letter of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or he owes you anything, he'll charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of you owing me your very own self. Oh, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That ends the reading of God's word. Let's go ahead and work our way through this letter a little bit. And let's take some time as we work our way through it. We're going to ultimately work through this letter onto the topic of forgiveness. We're not going to cover the whole letter. We won't have time for that, but let's see if we can cover the first 15 verses. It begins with this. Who are the people in the greeting? Verses 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's the answer. Philemon was a wealthy Christian in Colossae. We've already seen that. Aphia was probably Philemon's wife. 
Archippus was Philemon and Aphia's son. And by the way, he's described as a fellow worker in the church. He's involved in the church. And then as we start to work a little deeper into it, the letter starts to focus on why do we forgive? And here are the answers. Forgiveness is essential for Christian fellowship. Verses 4 through 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. Uh, Paul is complimenting Philemon, because he says, Philemon, you're not just somebody who loves Jesus, but you know that loving Jesus is connected with loving people. You cannot claim to love Jesus without loving people. Look what the Bible says here. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When we think about God's command to love other people, most of us say, that's not a big deal. I'm happy to love other people. I love lots of people. But folks, this is reminding us, we don't just love the easy-to-love people as Christians. We love the hard-to-love people as Christians. We don't just love those who are exactly like us. We love people who are different than us. In the church, that's to be one of the things that marks the church as different than the world. It's not just everybody who's the same age, everybody who has the same hobbies, everybody who has the same age kids. No, we're all different. But yet we love one another in spite of our differences. Now, folks, this is something that is hard for many of us to do in our politically charged world. It's very easy for churches to become what I call political echo chambers, where the people we love are those who are politically identical to us. I want you to be careful about that. If the only people we love are those who are politically identical to us, we are not loving our neighbor. Isn't that true? Did you ever realize that in Jesus' apostles, there were people with different political points of view? Matthew, the tax collector who worked for the Romans. Simon, the zealot who wanted to overthrow the Romans. I bet you the evening conversations were interesting, weren't they? But yet Jesus, the Jesus that united them, was bigger than any of the political differences that divided them. Folks, church, in the church, politics is not our message here. Jesus is our message. Uh, Should we have political convictions? Yes. Should we vote? Most definitely. But the problem in this world is not who is in the White House. The Bible tells us that. 
The problem in this world is sin. And it's common to all of humanity. And the only solution for sin is Jesus. He is the only one who can rightfully rule this world. And he is the only one who can rightfully rule your life. Not a political leader. And when in the church, we only love those who are politically identical to us, we're not coming across as the Christians that God means for us to be. Because Jesus is the main event, not politics. So, What happens here is Paul compliments Philemon. Hey, you love people. You don't just love Jesus, but you love people, even people that are different than you. Next thing we have to know is this. Extending forgiveness is essential to Christian growth. Verse 6. And I pray, he says, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul prayed that Philemon's face, faith would be, come to the point of having the full knowledge of every good thing that he has in Jesus. Now he uses the word effective. This word effective can also be translated as experienced. Think of this this way. Paul's prayer for Philemon is not just that he would talk about forgiveness in church, but he would have the experience of offering forgiveness. It's one thing to talk about forgiveness intellectually. It's a completely different thing to have to offer it experientially. True? The only way for us to grow in our, to come to a fuller understanding of God's forgiveness of us through Jesus is we have to go through the experience of offering forgiveness to somebody who hurt us. So our experiencing of offering forgiveness will grow and help us grow an understanding of Jesus' offer of forgiveness. It's one thing to talk about forgiveness on Sunday. It's a completely different thing to have to offer forgiveness to a coworker on Monday, isn't it? It's one thing to talk about climbing Mount Everest. It's a different thing to actually having climbed Mount Everest. So, it's crucial. The only way we can come to more fully comprehend Jesus' forgiveness of us is we have to go through the hard experience of offering forgiveness to somebody else. That, I would think, should reframe the way you think about some of the difficulties that are in your life right now. Maybe some of you are saying, God, I don't know why you've allowed this person into my life. I don't know know why you allowed this difficulty, this hurt, this pain that they did to me in my life. God, are you trying to ruin my faith? (laughs) Maybe part of the answer as to why God has allowed that difficulty in your life is not so he can ruin your faith, but because he's committed to growing your faith. You realize that when it comes to offering forgiveness, there's a crossroads there. You can't go in the middle. You have to go either left or right. The left is you can hold on to that hurt and become a bitter, angry person and allow Satan to get his foot in your world. Remember we talked about that earlier? But the right is we can offer crazy, insane levels of forgiveness to other people 
like Jesus offered crazy insane levels of forgiveness to us. And in so doing, we come to greater Christian maturity and greater love and admiration for Jesus. That's part of the story. So maybe why God allowed that hurt into your life. The next point. Forgiving those who hurt us is a powerful encouragement to the church. Verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul says he's derived much joy and comfort from Philemon's love. Philemon's love and care for other people in the church, he says, has been an encouragement to the rest of the church. Now, in the church, we like to think of ourselves as a bunch of individual relationships. You know, I have a relationship with this person, and I have a relationship with this person. And we think of those things as all individually compartmentalized, but it, that's not the way it works. In the church, we're like a web. We are all interconnected with one another and to one another. And how we treat one person in the church has an impact on relationships throughout the entire church. Onesimus comes back. Philemon sees him. He's clenching his fists. He's gritting his teeth. He's red in the face. He thinks of all the pain and hurt and money this guy has caused him. He grabbed him, brand a big F and a C right in his forehead. Stuck with that for life. But how is that going to impact relationships inside of that church where Philemon and Onesimus are in the same house of worship? Is it going to make relationships better? Or is it going to make relationships worse? But imagine if Philemon had insane, crazy levels of forgiveness for Onesimus and accepted it and restored him, and built a relationship with him, and treated him with kindness, wouldn't that spread throughout the entire church and encourage other people to forgive and other people to restore? Yes, it would. Forgiving others, forgiving those who hurt us is a powerful encouragement to the church. Now we get a little further. And it switches from talking about forgiveness one way, and it talks about how can I encourage forgiveness. Because Paul at this point starts to encourage forgiveness very subtly out of Philemon. Here's some things we can learn. Don't command someone to forgive. Encourage it to come from the heart. Philemon 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now, rather than commanding Philemon to forgive, all he does is he encourages him to forgive. Could command him, but commanding Philemon to forgive would probably not go over well. Any of you have multiple children? Anybody here? Yeah. Okay, multiple children. We, let me tell you what it was like in our house. I had two older boys who loved to beat on each other. And they weren't beating on each other, they were beating on their sister. And so that would bring the wrath of mom. Mom would grab them, sit them down, and say, now you apologize to your sister. Well, sure, I'll apologize. They said the words, but the apology was never really coming from the heart. They were just looking for an opportunity to knock a block off again. Isn't that true? 
In the same way, you can't command anybody to forgive. All you can do is to encourage them to forgive, but they need to make that choice. That choice has to come from their own heart. Now, let me think of it this way. This is a silly example, but I think it'll be memorable for you. How many of you guys, it's your task to take the garbage to the curb before the garbage truck comes the next morning? Anybody have that task? Dan, yeah, okay, a couple of you guys. That, that's my job. I'm the garbage guy. Now, Sunday night, there's two ways my wife can ask me to take out the garbage. She could command me to take out the garbage. Kurt, it's Sunday night. Get that garbage out there and get it out there now. Thankfully, she doesn't do it that way. Like, I may take it out, but I would not be taking it out with a happy heart, right? My wife is so sweet. She says something like this. She says, honey, it's Sunday night. Could you take the garbage out? And I just want you to know, I appreciate when you do things like that and help around the house. It just makes me feel so special. And I'm like, I'll take the garbage out. I'll empty all the waste baskets in the house. I'll dust. What else, what else do you need, right? Because it's encouraging words. Encouraging words, rather than commanding words, it helps to bring about forgiveness. So you can't command forgiveness, but we certainly can encourage it. Here's another one. My repentance will encourage forgiveness. Verses 10 through 11. It says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Paul says, while I was in prison, I became his father. In other words, he became a Christian when he was with me. <laughs> now, it doesn't directly state this in the text, but I think it's clearly implied in the text. When we become a Christian, what's the first thing we end up doing before we trust in Jesus? Confess our sin. Admit our sin. Own our sin. And then we trust in Jesus to forgive our sin. So Onesimus has been a man who's confessed his sin, who's owned his sin, who's admitted his sin, and then he's trusted in Jesus. And here is Onesimus going to travel 2,000 miles to go back to Philemon to try and restore relationship. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly. I do think it's there implicitly. What is Onesimus going to say when he walks in the door? I was wrong. I stole from you. Please forgive me. I am so repentant. Now, folks, when there's tension in a relationship and somebody owns their sin and somebody admits their sin, doesn't that take, like deflate a lot of the tension right out of the relationship? And all of a sudden, the other person says, well, I forgive you. If you want to encourage forgiveness in a broken relationship, and you're in a broken relationship, begin by admitting and owning your sin. That encourages repentance and forgiveness on the other side. Here's another one. An advocate encourages forgiveness. Uh, verses 12 through 14. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. 
Remember that when Philemon hears Onesimus' name, picture those clenched fists. Picture those pursed lips, the red face and the anger. Paul knows that in this relationship, it's going to be hard for Philemon to even get a hard for Onesimus, excuse me, to even get a word in edgewise. Because Philemon's going to want to shut down the listing after all that hurt and all that pain. So Paul becomes what I call an advocate between the two of them. Isn't that what he's doing? He's saying, Philemon, you know one Onesimus, but I know a different Onesimus, a guy that has been born again. Please listen to him. Please talk to him. That's what this letter is essentially doing. It's being an advocate between the two. Now, folks, I sometimes see this in marital relationships where they start to go sour. It's common for either the husband or the wife to just shut down the judgment of charity in the relationship. And no matter what the other person says, it's always assumed that it's meant with an evil intent and always assumed it's meant with an evil purpose. And as a pastor, sometimes I'm caught in the middle and I'm like, no, your filter is wrong. You're hearing things wrong and you have to like blow the whistle and like try and reset things. You need an advocate sometimes to get in the middle and help encourage that forgiveness and work that forgiveness. Folks, if you see people in a broken relationship that needs to be restored, maybe God wants you to be that advocate. Maybe God wants you to be the person that comes in and helps create that restoration, just like Paul was between Onesimus and Philemon. Sometimes you need that. Here's another one. Understanding God's providence encourages forgiveness. And I like the way Paul says this in verse 15. For this is perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. I love the way Paul sort of just mentally just dreams into the mystery of God's providence. You know what God's providence is. It's how God can take things that were done to us and in his power and wisdom, he can take them and turn them on their head and use them for his good purposes. One of the classics is the story of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold by his own brothers into slavery in Egypt. Joseph, who was accused of rape that he didn't do, finds himself in an Egyptian prison, locked away for a crime he didn't commit. But God can take all that in his providence and in one day flip Joseph from the dungeon room to the throne room. And that's what Paul just sort of postulates for Philemon. He says, you know, he ran away from you. He ran all the way to Rome. But he had no idea he was running right into the very place where I was. And God put it, so all of a sudden we found ourselves together so we could hear the gospel and be born again. Rather than focusing on the sin he has done to you, focus on the amazing providence of God who flipped it all over in his head, and so he was born again and is now restored to you. Isn't that amazing? How God can use providence? when. You think about the fact that somebody hurt you. They wounded you deeply. It's so easy to look at that on one dimension. They hurt you. They sinned against you. That's the end of it. <laughs> that's not God's dimension. 
He can take the evil that has been done by you and flip it on its head and use it for a good purpose in your life and even a good purpose in somebody else's life who has hurt you. Because God is much bigger, much bigger than the sin. And thank goodness, or we'd be in a world of hurt right now. How does the story end? Was there restoration between Philemon and Onesimus? The Bible doesn't tell us. But then as I thought about it, I think the Bible does tell us. Why was this little letter, this little postcard, preserved and loved by the early church? If it wasn't for the fact there was amazing restoration between Philemon and Onesimus, who became brothers in Christ in the church and were a witness to the entire church, an encouragement to the church and a witness to the world. Then why did the Holy Spirit see fit to preserve this little letter and actually put it in our Bibles? This amazing story of restoration and forgiveness. Folks, in this world, there are plenty of stories of revenge, plenty of stories of bitterness, plenty of stories of getting even out there. There's a real shortage of stories of forgiveness and restoration. Crazy, insane levels of forgiveness and restoration. The only people in this world who can write those stories are you and me. It's only people who experienced insane, crazy levels of forgiveness that can extend insane, crazy levels of forgiveness to others. You came in this morning. I know that for some of us, maybe most of us, there's a hurt that's in your heart. Somebody, maybe it was in your family. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a former spouse. Maybe it's someone at work who stabbed you in the back, who hurt you deeply and terribly, and you're still holding on to that. I don't have all the reasons why God may have allowed that difficulty into your life, but I do know this, that one of the reasons that is there is so you can offer crazy, insane levels of forgiveness to them. And in so doing, be an encouragement to everyone else in the church and being a witness to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who have a deep hurt right now, who have been wounded so grievously by someone. I pray that they would be encouraged this morning to offer those crazy, insane levels of forgiveness, knowing that if they hold on to that, they become a bitter person, and ultimately give Satan a foot into their life. But if they release that to you, they can become a better person, a Christ-like person who is an encouragement to the church and a witness to the world. May we be forgiving people because we are forgiving people. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.